if you ask people what would be a great future, the kind of most optimistic vision you will get today is let's stop climate change and prevent pandemics and maybe relieve poverty. And those are all great goals, but they're really quite humble goals, right? We can do so much more. We can go so much farther. We can create nanotechnology and fusion energy, and we can go back to space and we can cure all disease and we can cure aging itself and, and have longevity. We can have all of these things and we should. And we should be thinking much bigger than most people are thinking today. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Jason Crawford, founder of Roots of Progress and a prolific writer on all things technology and progress. Jason was previously a startup founder and engineering manager. His mission is to understand the causes of progress and help usher in a new era of human advancement via a philosophy of progress fit for the 21st century. You can find his essays on rootsofprogress.org. Our conversation with Jason centers around progress and the history of technology. We cover the relationship between human civilization and technology, assorted inventions, and lessons to consider in the development and implementation of future technologies. We also talk about why progress matters, how things went wrong in the 20th century, and Jason's idea of a new philosophy of progress. Jason has encyclopedic knowledge of diverse topics, which made this an especially rich conversation. Welcome, Jason. We are super glad to have you here today. We would love to start with what is your personal relationship with technology. Sure. Thanks a lot for having me here today. So my personal relationship with technology, before I was writing about progress full-time, my career was in the tech industry for almost 20 years. I started programming when I was like 12. I went to a high school with a magnet program for math, science, and computers. I did computer science in undergrad. I went into the tech industry, worked at Amazon, worked at a number of different startups, some of which I co-founded, some I joined spent well over a decade in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so the first, like I said, almost 20 years of my career was in in the tech industry. You know, I think that's part of the perspective that I bring to the progress studies is of someone who, you know, at one point was working or, you know, or trying to be at the front lines of actually driving a little bit of progress forward. Beautiful. You were initially in New York, is that right? And then you hopped over to Amazon early on? Yeah, I began my career in New York City at a place called D.E. Shaw. D.E. Shaw is best known as a hedge fund. I was never actually on the finance side. I joined what at the time was a kind of technology incubator group within the company, and then fairly quickly transitioned to what was starting up as David Shaw's private research group to work on new supercomputing architectures for biochemistry and molecular biology. In rough and slightly imprecise or inaccurate terms, they were basically trying to build a supercomputer to solve the protein folding problem and related problems. And built some very interesting parallel architectures and, and you know made some very interesting contributions as a private research group to, to that field. And indeed, I think it was even some of, some of their ex-employees who went on to build AlphaFold. So there's some legacy there. I did that first. Then I moved to Seattle and started working for Amazon. I, I joined a, another startup or a fairly early stage that was founded by some ex-Amazon folks. 
and then finally worked my way to the San Francisco Bay Area in order to do my startups as a co-founder. So you mentioned that the word technology, we'll talk about that quite a bit. Maybe it's useful, maybe it's not, but nonetheless, how do you define technology? What does that word mean to you? I don't have a formal definition off the top of my head. It is a collection of techniques, inventions, and knowledge and practices that allow us to accomplish economic goals. Maybe you would even define it more broadly, human goals, you know, within the physical world and for that matter, the world of information as well. That is very concise and precise. So taking this a bit further and maybe more into meats and potatoes of our conversation, how do you characterize human progress, the history of human progress and technology? One thing I will say about the term technology is that occasionally, especially when we shorten it to tech, these days, it seems to have a very narrow meaning that means like computers and the internet or software or something. So obviously, in the context of human progress, the term technology is much, much broader. As far as I'm concerned, technology and progress are older than Homo sapiens. I mean, they, the beginnings of stone tools are millions of years old, long before our species evolved, right? Our ancestors, millions of years ago, were making stone tools, and that was a form of technology. And you can actually see the technology evolve over the millions of years. It started off as literally just, I have a rock and I whack it with another rock until a piece of it breaks off and I have a sharp edge. And then later you can see, oh, I can refine this. I can actually make a sharp edge all the way around and you know knock off pieces of the rock on both sides. And that's called a biface. And then later it gets even... So in the last tens of thousands of years, rather than millions of years, you see like a wide variety of specialized tools and they're much more finely honed. So they're rather than just being a big rock with a sharp edge, it's like, well, this one is an awl for drilling holes, right? And this one is an arrowhead and this one is a sickle and so forth, right? And so they get much more precisely made and more specialized in, in their functions. And so you can actually see essentially human progress through the millions of years just in stone tools. As far as I'm concerned, progress goes back that far. You asked me how I would characterize it overall. I think the one of the most important things to understand about human progress in the broad sweep of things is that it compounds. And what that means is that not only does progress continue over time, but the pace of progress accelerates. The rate of progress increases over time proportional to the level of progress itself. And this is because progress begets progress. So when we get the printing press, we can accelerate all information technology, right? Accelerates the spread of ideas and the refinement of ideas and the sharing of ideas. When we get new technology for manufacturing, like precision machining, that opens up whole new vistas for the kinds of machines that we can create and the kinds of inventions that we can create. New forms of energy open up a whole new, vast new possibilities for how we can create things. Transportation technology opens up new markets. Every once in a while, you get one of these sort of big general purpose technologies that's so fundamental that it improves everything, including improving the process of making progress itself. And so if you look at human, some measure of human progress like GDP per capita or something, as it is estimated going back thousands and even millions of years, and then you plot it on a log, a semi-log plot, right? A logarithmic y-axis, you know, in general, on a plot like that, an exponential curve looks like a straight line. If you take, say, GDP per capita over the long term, it doesn't even look like a straight line. It's a line bending upwards. And so that tells you that what's actually happening is, is that the rate of progress is speeding up over time. Whether it's speeding up continuously or in more discrete increments as we shift modes, I'm not totally sure of. But certainly the shift from hunter-gatherer society to agriculture or the shift from or the invention of writing or the shift to the industrial and industrial society through the Industrial Revolution, those things kind of look like a knee in the curve, like a bend where we just kicked into higher gear and, um, and started going faster. And I see no fundamental reason why that should not continue into the future. Fundamentally, I expect the pace of progress to get only faster. Maybe. Unless we screw it up, which is a whole different question. But barring that. Are there ways to divide the progress through this timeline, millions of years into eras? How do you view that? And maybe discrete technologies which may have happened or inventions which may have happened during these eras were the inflection point to the next era being started, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think the most important way to do it is, which is fairly common, is to think of it in three broad eras. There is the tribal hunter-gatherer era, then there's the agricultural era, and then there is the industrial era. Hunter-gatherer is from whenever you beginning, whenever, however early you want to date it, up until about 10,000, 12,000 years ago. Agriculture starts then, and then industry starts, you know, about 250, 300 years ago. I think those are the biggest things where we had a whole, uh, just a fundamental mode shift in how the economy works and how society works. So those, yeah, those three are the biggest kind of divisions. And what were the important inventions in those eras from your point of view? The first transition was, again, from hunter-gatherer to agriculture. So agriculture itself, and that went along with kind of the development of settled societies. So rather than having nomadic tribes, you had people actually settle down and build permanent homes. And that's super important because it means you can actually accumulate stuff. Like, So the problem with being a nomad is that you can only own what you can carry with you. I highly recommend, by the way, Jacob Bronowski's The Ascent of Man. It's a famous television series, but it was also made into a book. And he's got an episode slash chapter on nomadic life. And he follows these nomad peoples and it just shows you how they've got to take everything with them. Their children, their all their possessions, their tent. You know, if they're lucky, they have some animals. But we didn't even have pack animals in the beginning. So one of the really important things that you cannot have as a nomad is a furnace for kilning or smelting. So you basically don't have the major crafts. So think about metalworking, pottery glass blowing, et cetera. All, of, what, all these things have in common is they require very high heat in large furnaces. Without that, you can't really, you can't really have all of those crafts. You're never going to do, there's no such thing as a nomadic metal worker. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. You need the furnace, you need to find ore and fuel, you need tools, you need all this stuff. And so once you can settle down in one place, you can begin to accumulate things. And that's, you can start to build capital. Literally what today, fast forward 10,000 years, 20th century economists would call capital accumulation. So that was was really crucial. And by the way, it's not totally obvious how agriculture and settled societies evolved. Like, I think they sort of co-evolved, and it was probably a very gradual process, right? And then you ask, okay, well, what about the transition to industry? So that was a lot more complicated. There were a lot more things going on at once. Some of the obvious major technologies were one, you know, new energy technologies, particularly the steam engine, right, which is the, and then later other forms of fuel-based engines. This was the first time that we could actually turn heat into useful work. And so it solved this fundamental problem of being able to have power where and when you want it. Uh, all previous modes of power had been, so either you had animal power, which can't really be scaled, or you had wind and water, which only exist where and when they feel like existing, right? The river is just in one place and the wind doesn't blow all the time. And so you're very dependent on those things. Whereas engine technology using burning fuel to create work just fundamentally changed that equation and allowed you to have power wherever and whenever you want it because fuel can actually be stored and transported and then allowed you to scale it up as well and have more and more power concentrated in the same place. So that was absolutely fundamental. There's a reason why the steam engine is the quintessential, central, symbolic invention of the Industrial Revolution. And then, of course, the other thing that we focus on in the Industrial Revolution is just automation and mechanization of particularly of manufacturing, right? So you think of cotton textile manufacturing as one of the classic case studies, and again, for good reason. There were a lot of other things going on at the same time. I think to fully understand the Industrial Revolution, you should actually increase the kind of scope of the phenomena that you're looking at, go wider, and look at other things that were going on, such as so, I mean, even if you just look in the 1700s, there was vaccination, inoculation, and then vaccination against smallpox was something that was going on at the same time. There was an evolution in just like how the factory itself was organized. There were a lot of there were improvements in agriculture that were going on. There were, there were a lot of improvements in transportation, even before we got powered transportation with the locomotive. There was canal building. There was a lot of road improvements and so forth. There were kind of a lot of things going on. If you really want to understand the Industrial Revolution, I think it's a mistake to look only very narrowly at steam and cotton mechanization and not take account of this much broader swath of progress that was happening. So it was really the combination of all of those things. And really, I think it's best understood as something that, in a sense, was building up for centuries and just hit a kind of tipping point or inflection point 
where again it really kicked economic production into into a new mode. Um, but she also can't understand the industrial revolution without understanding what how it was happening for like a couple of centuries at least before him. Are there any instances of this history of technology which fascinates you? Are there any that don't? <laughs> no, really. Absolutely. I mean, pretty much all of it. It's hard for me to find a technology that I don't wouldn't love to just fully understand. So one that I'm really fascinated with right now is is this question of automation, and in particular. Why is it that so much automation waited until, say, the 1700s or, or even 1800s? There were some jobs and some tasks that were automated long, long before. So if you think about all of the things that we had mills for, so we had grain mills, right, for grinding grain flour mills. We had sawmills, we had fulling mills for fulling cloth, which is basically the way you full cloth by hand is it's by foot. You put it in a vat and you stomp on it. So the, think of a machine that kind of does the equivalent pounding, pounding down on it. There were lots of different things. In blast furnaces, the bellows were automated with water power. So there's all this stuff that was done by wind and water. And you kind of ask, why is it that we did all of these jobs with wind and water power, but we didn't do cotton spinning? And we didn't do weaving, and we didn't do manufacturing of a whole lot of other things. Why? Why was it just this narrow, relatively narrow set of jobs that was automated? And so I've been looking into a lot of things. I've been looking into that history. I've been looking into what were people trying to do in like the 1600s and talking about doing and 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 writing up in books and drawing diagrams of. And did any of it work? And why didn't it work? Why was this stuff so difficult? I've been looking a bit into clocks and watches and the kind of the history of that read a really interesting paper suggesting that the modern clock, rather than evolving from previous types of timepieces, ways of telling time, the modern clock actually devolved from much more complicated mechanisms that were meant to be astronomical calculators, like an orrery. And these things were built in the ancient world and they were built in the medieval world. And a lot of like mechanical ingenuity went into building these things. And they were, for their day, they were very high precision, very precisely crafted instruments. In fact, I think some of the, one of the earliest references to a gear cutting machine was to make one of these big astronomical displays. Do you recall the name of that paper? I don't remember recall the exact name of it. It's by Derek J. DeSala Price. And the the title of the paper is something like On the Invention of Clocks and Perpetual Motion Machines. And I, f I forget exactly. I've mentioned it on my blog in one of my reading lists in the last few months. Fascinating. Why automation did not persist. Yeah. <laughs> and I've written a little bit about this with the history of the threshing machine. So I wrote a whole post on like, why was it that the threshing machine kind of waited until very late 1700s, didn't really take off until the early to mid 1800s. And why was that? My theory was essentially that the threshing machine was something that required both relatively high force and relatively high accuracy. To contrast, a, a grain mill requires high force, but it doesn't require high accuracy. You just got to grind some stones together, right? It's pretty brute force. And in fact, all of these things that I've mentioned that were driven by water and wind power, they were fairly brute force operations. And they used pretty crude mechanisms like wooden gearing, right? Which which works to transmit power, but in a very low precision way. And then the other types of things that we had tools for or had partially automated, think of something like the loom, which is a very intricate operation, but it doesn't require a lot of force at all, right? And then the threshing machine, so like threshing grain requires both high force and high precision. It requires force in order to break apart the shells of the wheat seeds. That's what threshing is. But if you don't have high precision, you end up destroying the grain itself or bruising the grain or you end up or the machine, it turns out, if you didn't build with fairly high precision, the machine would just break down like the machine's parts would knock against themselves and then the whole thing would just it would tear itself apart. And so a lot of the early attempts at making a threshing machine failed because the machines were just unreliable. And it just wasn't worth it to have a machine that was constantly breaking down. And so my contention was when you hit a certain kind of threshold of force and, and delicacy of the operation, you need high precision machining. 
And indeed, some of the successful machines in the 1820s or so were made by engine manufacturers who would have been at the cutting edge of what you could do with machine tools and precision manufacturing. They would have had the skilled machinists who knew how to make very precise gears and other parts, and they would have been made out of metal, not wood, you know, and so forth. And so I think there's definitely the history of precision has something important to do with this question of why couldn't we automate more labor earlier? Because a lot of human labor is just very dexterous. And to get a machine to do it requires a high precision machine. But again, I'm not totally clear on like, it seems like clocks would have been high precision. And yet we had them in the 1500s or in the 1300s, right? We had watches in the 1500s. And why didn't we get the spinning machine until the 1700s? I I still don't have a 100% answer for this. No, that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that. That was truly a tour de force of the last few million years. You segmented that nicely to three neat eras. And the obvious, perhaps, next question is, what are we in now then? You talked about the last one being the industrialized era. I guess, how do you situate conceptually the digital era, era of computing against the backdrop of those three previous eras that you just described? Well, we're still in the industrial era. We haven't, I don't think there's been any fundamental shift since the Industrial Revolution that's been as big. You could imagine that there would be another one. There's a fun paper from Robin Hansen a couple decades ago where he looks at some of these GDP measures, including estimates going back millions of years, which, by the way, are super shaky and don't read too much into them. But if you take the estimates that exist, and then you try to fit some curves to them. So like I said, progress compounds, and the rate of progress speeds up over time. To a rough kind of first approximation, the rate of progress is proportional to progress itself. So certainly this is true in population terms. So here's an interesting fact. The rate of population growth, of human population growth, seems to be proportional to population size up until about 1960 when that broke down. If you take something, any function that is where the rate of growth is proportional to its size, I don't mean the derivative, right? So if the derivative of a function is proportional to its value, you get an exponential curve. But if the percentage rate is proportional to the size of the function, then you actually get a hyperbolic curve, which means it goes infinite in finite time. There's some point in the future where there's an asymptote and it just hits infinity. So obviously this is not going to happen to population or GDP or anything real you know, in the world, right? So Robin Hansen said, well, okay, what if instead of a single like hyperbolic curve, what if we fit it to a series of exponentials? And what if we think of there being different exponential modes that we're making a shift between? Long story short, he ends up coming up with a model that has three exponents, three exponential curves, and then a a transition function between each one where you can blend one into the next. And he says you can kind of roughly think of these three exponential curves as hunting, farming, industry, right? So again, the three eras of human history that we talked about. And so the fun thing about this is that each time we transition one of those modes, the new mode goes something like two orders of magnitude faster than the previous mode in terms of growth rate. And the length of time until the next mode transition is like two orders of magnitude less. Very roughly. It's been a little while since I read the paper. Go look it up for the exact numbers. So then, of course, you get the question, what if there were a fourth mode? Okay, well, we don't know for sure if there's going to be one. But if there were, when would it arrive? And what would the growth look like? And it turns out it would arrive, as I recall, sometime this century. And the growth rate would be insane compared to today, right? It would be like the economy would double within, I don't remember, years months, maybe weeks, some insanely short period of time. And so the thing that's kind of interesting to contemplate, and I'm just going to leave it at interesting to contemplate, right? This is no kind of prediction or anything, is that this is also the kind of growth that people have talked about with, in some cases, with nanotech, and especially with AI. And so if AI could automate all of R&D, essentially and just take over industrial development for us and technological development and scientific progress, then you can imagine a world where that does compound and exceeds all you know, human limits. And maybe that is something that would put us in some insane growth rate of 100% annual GDP growth or something crazy like that. Yeah. 
so maybe AI is the fourth mode, right? Or maybe some sort of information age is the fourth mode. But of course, that's you know highly speculative. What the last at least 15, 20 years has been characterized by is an automation of mental labor, mental capacity. So from automating muscle power, right? Mechanization, like you talked about, now parts of the brain's capabilities are being automated. Maybe explain how you think about that aspect of the history of technology. Yeah, so let me integrate this with some other stuff, some other work in economics. So in gro- in economic growth theory, there are various models of how the economy grows and the input of technology to that, right? Technological development is kind of a parameter in these models. You might have heard of something called total factor productivity, which is this thing that we throw in. It's funny because it's one of these things we don't measure directly. But it's like we measure everything else and then we subtract it all out. And then there's this residual that we can't explain. And we sort of say, must be technology. So if you look at GDP growth and then you back out, obviously some of GDP growth maybe comes from people having more workers and people working more hours, perhaps, if they do work more hours. Maybe there's a portion that comes from the workers being better educated or trained or skilled. And maybe there's a portion that comes from more capital investment, like we built more factories and stuff. And then once you're done accounting for all that stuff, there's still some growth left over. And we say, that's like technology. Or more broadly, we might say technology plus organization, management, better capital allocation, et cetera, right? But it's this broad, fuzzy set of factors. And we just call it TFP or total factor productivity. So in economics, we don't have super strong models for how TFP grows or what, or, or why it's much stronger in some places than others, or at some times than others, or in some industries than others. There are some papers that point out that if you look at what it takes to look at TFP growth over the century, and you know maybe it's roughly constant with some ups and downs, but if you look at what's going into that, the inputs to creating new technology, all of the investment in R&D and everything, that all is growing exponentially. From a certain standpoint, this is not too surprising. It's okay, we have exponential growth in everything. We have exponential growth in the outputs of our economy and our industrial base. And in order to keep that growth going, we also need exponential investment in the fundamentals, the R&D and everything that goes to developing that. Okay, fine. But what does this imply? This implies that to keep growth going at the rate that we are to which we have become accustomed, we have to continue growing the inputs to R&D exponentially. And one of those inputs is people. And people are the thing that has that has stopped growing exponentially, and in fact, where the rate of growth in people has, is slowing down, right? So population growth hit a peak around 1968 or something. Kind of ironically, that was the year of the population bomb, Paul and Anne Ehrlich's famous book, where they were worried about overpopulation. They put that out right at the peak of when population growth was actually turning around. And so now population growth is shrinking. And in fact, by some projections by the UN, world population will peak in this century and will actually plateau or perhaps even start declining. So we may never get more than 10 or 11 billion people, right? And we're only at 8 billion now. We're not talking like a huge increase. So the challenge with that is if part of what's been driving the amazing productivity growth over the last century or two or three or century and a half, however you want to measure it exactly, if what's been driving that has been an increase in the number of people, and by the way, not just an increase in the number of people, but also we've had those people have been getting better and better educated, and we've been putting more and more of a proportion of them into R&D and so forth, right? There are limits to how far we can keep that going if the fun, if the population itself does not increase. We can't increase, at a certain point, 100% of your population is like PhD level researchers. And then you can only grow your research base as fast as your population grows. And if all of the all of those researchers are so busy with their research careers that they only have 1.7 children on average per family, then your population is actually shrinking every generation. And now, you know, what happens to your growth, right? So one view, so how do we get out of this? Well, there's a number of there's a number of ways, right? I mean, one thing is we might just ask why is population growth slowing down and maybe we could actually maybe we could actually speed it up again. You can look at unlocking talent in the rest of the world that hasn't been unlocked. There's a lot of talent in Africa and Asia that that doesn't enter the R&D workforce that probably could in some theoretical world. So you can look at a number of these things. But one of the things you can also look at is well what if we could automate it? 
Um, the challenge is for this to be a long-term solution, you have to automate it essentially completely. If you have any amount of humans left, they will eventually become the bottleneck. Or you'd have to continue to reduce the amount that humans are needed exponentially. But with AI, maybe we can do that. So maybe AI saves us from the population slowdown and allows us to essentially continue growing the number of scientists and researchers and inventors exponentially without having to keep growing the population exponentially. I'll just, by the way, a lot of what I just said is based on the work of the economist Chad Jones. So if you're interested in checking some of this stuff out, he's one of the names to look up. Other names include Paul Romer and Robert Solow, both of whom, Romer and Solow both won the Nobel Prizes for their work. Solow was like in the 50s, and he was the one who identified the uh, importance of the of sort of the technology factor and how important that was to growth and kind of essentially invented a total factor of productivity. And then Romer was one of the ones who helped contribute to the theory of how does TFP grow? And in particular, pointing out essentially more people means coming up with more ideas and ideas can be sort of shared infinitely. And therefore, they just contribute to overall per capita economic growth. So yeah, Solow to Romer to Chad Jones is this very interesting progression of ideas. Has your view on the history of technology as a discipline changed in, let's say, any meaningful way since you started diving into technology? Yeah, in various ways. Going back to tie that into what we were talking about earlier in terms of mechanization, I think going into this sort of study of progress, I might have assumed that people were fairly indifferent to progress for a long time and maybe weren't really trying to make progress and that was why we didn't that was why we there wasn't a, you know relatively low rate of invention say until the industrial revolution and the more i study it the more i realize that's not really true i mean it's true in a sense in a quantitative sense in the sense that the number of people who cared about invention the number of people who devoted their careers to it the resources going into it that all has increased but it wasn't because Nobody was ever trying to automate anything, or nobody ever tried to make any inventions, or nobody thought that it would be a good idea to automate labor. Again, there are ways in which that's true. There were social taboos against automating labor, saving labor. You just look at the effort that people put into all that stuff we talked about with automating things through water and wind power. And you look in the 1600s, and there were, and even earlier, like really throughout... Um, I have this whole list in a, in some research notes somewhere of all of these documents throughout the ages of essentially people putting together like books of ingenious machinery. There are books like this from the Arab world, I think, or the Islamic world from like the ninth century or something. There's something around there, something called like the Book of Ingenious Machines. And then there was another, somebody centuries later did a, a follow-up to it, something like another Book of Ingenious Machines. And then there are just, there's one of these in the 1400s and there's one in the 1600s. And so it's all throughout this time, there were some people who thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had better machines that did neat stuff for it? And so it's not as if that was like a totally unknown idea. Again, the level of interest and investment in that increased. But it wasn't as if uh, the idea that we should make cool machines to help us out was like unknown or somehow like totally taboo. And so I've started to put more weight on just, like I said, this notion that progress compounds that the more surplus wealth we have, the more we can plow into R&D. The more communication technology we have, the more we can share ideas. The more manufacturing technology we have, the more kinds of machines we can make. The more energy technology we have, the more we can power them. The better institutions that we have, the more we can organize to, to do R&D and then to actually develop, do the industrial and the business development that we need to put these things into practice. The more transportation and communication technology we have, the bigger markets exist and the better chance that you have for a return on investment if you can sell to the whole world instead of just your local town. Why did nobody invent like a whole lot of farming machinery before the 1800s? One reason is it would it was just hard to sell to like outside your own town. Before there were newspapers, before there were railroads, before there were a lot of canals and good turnpikes, roads and all that stuff. Yeah, you could have invented some farming machinery, but you probably, it would have been difficult, you know, if you were a millwright or something or a cartwright or just some some local inventor, you, yeah, maybe you could have invented the reaper or the threshing machine or something, but who would you have sold it to? It would just been difficult to like get it much beyond your own village. That was like another limiting factor. So I've come to recognize 
um, that there are all of these flywheels of progress, these self-reinforcing loops that take a long time to get going, but then once they get going are, are almost unstoppable. And there's many of them stacked on top of each other and they all compound and reinforce each other. And it leads to this accelerating pace of progress over time. And I still include the idea of progress in there. It's one of these, these kind of deeper cultural and philosophical factors. That's one of the flywheels. The more progress we make, the more people think it's possible to make progress and the more they invest in doing so. And then the more we make, and then the more, so, you know, you get one of those virtuous kind of reinforcing cycles. Um, but I now see that as one of many overlapping such loops. Thank you. You've spent a lot of time looking at historical materials, documents, and it seems like, you know, the further you go back in history, the more careful you need to be in how you wait and assess that kind of materials. It seems like being a detective is the role of a historian. I'm curious if you've developed any frameworks or models in particular that you found helpful in studying history generally, specifically history of technology. In terms of the detective work, I rely a lot on secondary sources and on academia. A lot of what it means to be an academic in history or archaeology or economic history or whatever is to do a lot of really detailed work to just accumulate a data set and clean it up and make sure you understand what it is and what it means and what it's saying and then try to analyze it in different ways and so forth. And I don't do that. I I read the papers where people have done that. So there are people whose job it is to go dig up the dusty archives of some text, 18th century textile company, look at their business records, or read farmers' diaries from the Middle Ages or something, or what. They probably didn't have them in the Middle Ages, but that kind of thing. You can spend a very long time to learn something that's relatively narrow. And I'm very glad that there are people out there who do that, but that's not what I do. When I'm going to primary sources, I'm usually going to more high leverage things like I'll read the original account of an inventor. They write an autobiography or they write an account of here's how I invented the thing. Or I'll read their original technical paper that was published in a journal somewhere or whatever. Those are the kinds of primary sources that I find high leverage and, and fruitful. And I'll read a lot of that stuff. But for if I want to understand something about economic data about prices and wages from the 17th century, I'm going to go to secondary sources for that stuff. And so I see my role as my role is different from an academic. I'm not an academic myself. I'm not trained as one. I'm not employed as one. I see my role as something a little closer to a journalist in that I am becoming very familiar with all of this literature and research. But what I, I'm doing, my contribution is to summarize it, synthesize it, and communicate it to a broader audience, and to integrate it into an entire worldview, and to integrate across fields. So one thing that I do is I combine history, philosophy, and economics into an overall worldview and idea of what is progress and how does it happen. And so that's the kind of thing that, that I think you can best contribute outside of academia. I think what's clear is that the synthesizers, they bring a lot of value to this world because academia, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, but it, it comes at a detriment of not being able to take a broad enough, enough view of the world and you end up being so super specialized that you can't really see the full picture. And someone like you can see the full picture and synthesize. That is really useful too. A broader audience. Yeah. And it's not as if there are academics who don't see the big picture. And kind of the most famous ones get famous because they end up coming up with some kind of bigger synthesis. Yeah. But the incentives within academia, or so I am told, are to kind of do the narrower work. If you want to build a career today, you have to do the narrower work. Anyway, no, I, but I, I just see it as, as partly as a division of labor as well. My goal and my contribution is to go broader and to do that synthesis. I mean, okay, but maybe to get it a little bit more at your question, you asked, do I have any frameworks or models about how to do this kind of thing? I can talk about how to, a little bit about how to do my kind of work. I do think that you need to get deep into case studies. I do think you need to read, you do need to read a lot of academic work because there is a lot of important stuff out there. I do think you do need to go to some of those primary sources that I talked about, especially if you want to find new and interesting stuff that hasn't been already done to death. And I think you just need to get a little obsessed about some question, even if it seems narrow or esoteric, and just find something that you can't stop thinking about and desperately want to know the answer to, 
and find something where you're willing to read 10 times as much as any normal person might be willing to read in order to answer the question and just find something, find some question that fascinates you so much that you're willing to just dig through a whole lot of dry, dusty, dense, verbose academic work or source material or something, you know, in order to find the answer to your question. And then have a knack for writing it up in an engaging way that kind of anybody can just absorb. That's that's what I do. You've mentioned compounding being one of the ways technology has progressed. Are there any other notable patterns which you've seen in how technology or progress evolves? A lot has been said about the sort of incrementalism of progress. It's true. Progress is very incremental. There are big breakthrough inventions. They tend to get the attention and get written up in the histories. And for good reason, I think. I, I don't think it's wrong that we put so much attention on them. But as is commonly pointed out, the first version of any invention usually doesn't work very well compared to... It usually works just barely well enough to be economically viable. In fact... What you often see is before the thing that is called the... You read stories about the invention of X, the invention of the light bulb, right? The invention of the computer. And it always turns out, okay, you know, did Thomas Edison invent the light bulb? Like, you'll hear a bunch of folks who say like, oh, no, he didn't because, look, there were these 20 other light bulbs before him. It turns out that those light, the reason those light bulbs don't get written up in the history books is because they weren't viable. Like, they burned out really quick or they were super expensive because they used like platinum filaments or both. And, you know, they just weren't, they were interesting prototypes as a proof of concept, but it wasn't what you really needed. In my opinion, yes, Edison actually did invent the light bulb or his lab invented the light bulb. And it was co-invented by another dude in Britain, Swan, at the same time. Fine. I'll give both of them credit. But those folks invented the light bulb because they actually invented a practical, you know, workable, usable, viable, economically viable version. But Okay, if you see that as a process of getting better and better in terms of cost and life of the bulb and so forth, that process didn't stop with the invention of the bulb. It continued. And then we got better and better bulbs after that, cheaper and longer lasting and brighter and so forth. And so the first, when we say the invention of X, it's usually the first one that crossed some critical threshold from not viable to actually economically viable and interesting. But there was a lot of iteration before that point to continue improving the models until they were viable. And then there's a lot of iteration after that point to keep making them better and better. And so usually the later version of a thing, right? Modern internal combustion engines versus the very first one. Modern light bulbs, modern computers. Wow, orders of magnitude better. Another model that I like here is is a really interesting essay by Jerry Newman called One Process. And in this essay, he argues that the breakthrough, the sort of big breakthrough inventions or the general purpose technologies versus the kind of things that seem more incremental are not two fundamentally different processes of innovation. They are the same process that has a power law distribution of outcomes. Imagine a kind of a tree of a diagrammatic tree of technologies and they're arranged in order of how fundamental they are. So if you invent a new type of pencil, that's nice, but it may have very few kind of downstream consequences. Whereas if you invent a new type of engine, that has a lot of downstream consequences for the what the types of things that it enables. And so if you kind of arrange things this way, what you'll find out is that if you just say you just improve a random node in the tree, how much value have you created? You've created some value proportional to how many downstream nodes there were in the tree. And this turns out to have some sort of, I might be messing up the math. It's been a while since I read this essay, but it, it, it turns out to have a kind of power law distribution of outcomes. And okay, it turns out the ones that are like really up there in terms of their, the number of kind of downstream consequences and the magnitude of the impact, we call them breakthroughs or general purpose technologies or something like that. And then all the little ones, you know, we just call incremental. But there's no fundamental difference between them. It's just, there's really just a smooth distribution. And because of the power law, it's just, there's a few like wacky, huge outliers. But it's one fundamental process of innovation that just gets you different things at different points in this tree. It's just fascinating to hear you talk about this stuff. Last part on this, or last, I guess, question really, Jason, on this section is lessons we can learn from the history of technology to help guide our decisions in, in the future. Is there anything you would want to highlight having studied a large part of the history of technology in terms of 
useful lessons that we can use to guide development and implementation of new technologies in the future? Well, that's a large topic. Maybe the cliff notes. <laughs> I'll throw out, yeah. I mean, I'll just, I'll throw out a couple of ideas. I mean, since you asked about guiding the future, I'll talk about what I think some of the challenges are in the present and how we could improve. Sure. I think one thing to think about is how do we fund progress? And what are the implications for how, and especially how do we fund research and development? Because how do we fund new businesses is actually fairly well. I think we have that down. We have VC and it works pretty well. And we have a whole for-profit kind of funding mechanism for investing in business. But investing in R&D and science is difficult. And the for-profit mechanisms we have don't work that well. And so what we are left with are nonprofit mechanisms, both private and public. And I think those have a challenge right now as well. And I think looking at how we fund, organize, and manage science and more broadly research is really important. And I think in particular, there's been a fundamental tension between accountability and scientific freedom. And in the quest to make sure that there's accountability for how public dollars are spent, we've built up a whole lot of process and overhead and inefficiency, and we've also quashed a lot of research freedom. And I think that's one of the things that has contributed to, we haven't talked about this yet, but but the slowdown of progress over the last 50 years or so. And then the other thing that I'll point to as a place where we need improvement is just the regulatory apparatus. I think in many areas, we are over-regulated, possibly in, in certain senses over and under-regulated at the same time. But certainly, I think there's a lot of regulatory overreach that has also contributed to stagnation. I think we need a lot of regulatory reform. Just to throw off one thing that's on the top of my head right now, NEPA and permitting reform it's, there's, I think they're starting to generally build now a consensus that permitting reform for all kinds of construction and development and infrastructure is just totally getting in our way. It takes way too long to get approvals for anything, and we can't build anything. Um, we can't build housing. We can't build transit. We can't build energy infrastructure. We can't build transmission lines. We can't build other types of infrastructure. And we need that stuff. That's just one sort of small example. For a few other examples, I would just point you to a recent essay of mine, Who Regulates the Regulators, about some of the ways in which the kind of review and approval paradigm for regulation have gone wrong. We'll move on to the next section. We'll start with progress studies. What is progress and why do we need a new philosophy of progress? So there are at least two kinds of progress. There's progress in our capabilities, which is science, technology, industry, infrastructure, economic growth, increases in our ability to understand and manipulate the world. And then there's progress in human outcomes, human well-being. Are we living longer, healthier, happier lives? Do we have more freedom and choice and opportunity? Are we able to make the most of ourselves and become the fullest and best version of ourselves, fulfill all of our capabilities, and ultimately, are we thriving and, and flourishing? Are we living better lives? Why do we need a new philosophy of progress is to answer the question of, do improvements in our capabilities lead to better outcomes? And, and under what conditions? How, what is needed to make sure that the continuing improvement in our capabilities leads to continued improved outcomes for humanity. So what's your philosophy of progress? Fundamentally, I think progress is real and important. I think progress is both possible and desirable. Overall, progress has led to amazing outcomes for humanity. I mean, really what motivated me to get into this was just the perspective that the progress of the last few hundred years is one of the greatest things that has happened to humanity. And in fact, if you broaden it from just scientific and technological and industrial progress, and you include moral and social and governance progress, the the fall of monarchy, right? And the replacement with representative government, democratic republics, rights for women, the end of slavery in almost all of the world, and things like this. I think you can simply say it is all of that progress combined is the single best thing ever to happen to humanity in all of history. I think we need to understand how that happened, what caused it why it took so long to really get going in all, of, all the thousands and tens of thousands of years of human history, and how we continue it, how we keep it going, and maybe even accelerate it while at the same time steering it to, to good outcomes for humanity. I think that we've already talked about some of my ideas about how progress happens. 
I think that uh, I'll just emphasize something that I only very briefly touched on, which is I do think that the idea of progress is one of those key inputs to how much progress happens. I think ultimately to make progress, we have to believe in it. We have to believe that it is possible and desirable in order to direct our talents and our energies and our resources towards it. I mentioned sort of the burden of regulation. I mentioned how we manage science. The third big factor that I think has contributed to the slowdown of progress in the last 50 years is a loss of belief and confidence in progress and a lot of fear and, uh, and uncertainty and skepticism around the very idea of progress and whether it's something that we want or should go for or can manage as a species. I think we need to learn to believe in progress again and, and to believe in our own agency as individuals and as a species to shape a better future. I think we need to return to having a bold and ambitious vision for that future, a future that we want to live in that is not just a continuation of the present and not even just a continuation of the present with some of the worst fears ameliorated. Like, um, If you ask people what would be a great future, the kind of most optimistic vision you will get today is let's stop climate change and prevent pandemics and maybe relieve poverty. And those are all great goals, but they're really quite humble goals, right? We can do so much more. We can go so much farther. We can create nanotechnology and fusion energy, and we can go back to space, and we can cure all disease, and we can cure aging itself and, and have longevity. We can have all of these things, and we should. And we should be thinking much bigger than most people are thinking today. And it wasn't long ago that more people thought like this, that these kinds of, this kind of optimism for the future and not just optimism, but ambition for the future was common up until the 50s or 60s, I would say. It's something I would like us to get back. Yeah, that, that's inspiring. And maybe just briefly, is there any element of your philosophy of progress in and of itself that might be at odds with human well-being in the sense that this attachment to material outcomes and to material things, is there some sort of unhealthy part of that potentially as a byproduct that we need to consider? No, I don't, I don't think so. We are material beings. The, our attachment to the material world is not some unhealthy addiction. It's the nature of, of our, that's, it's who we are. Every organism is attached to the material world, is part of the material world. No, our material needs are absolutely a part of who we are. And I don't think that our material needs are at odds with our intellectual or emotional or cognitive, psychological or spiritual needs. And I think ultimately those things go together. In fact, I think that material progress in many ways has supported our our emotional and psychological and spiritual needs. I have an essay on this too, actually. Check out The Spiritual Benefits of Material Progress. I think this dovetails very well into the next question on the belief being lost. At a civilization level, what's required to make sustained progress? There are a lot of factors. Many of them we already have in place. We already invented science. We have pretty good communication and transportation networks now. We have the basic idea, you know, we have financial institutions, etc. So I'll just focus on, I'll just briefly recap because we've really touched on all of them. But I think the three biggest things we need now to reaccelerate and to unlock future progress are one, a regulatory reform so that we have an environment with the freedom that we need to actually go ahead and make progress. Two, reform in the way that we fund and manage research and science itself so that we can have, with one of the biggest goals being more scientific freedom for researchers. And then number three, a sort of revival of the belief in progress uh, itself so that our best talents and energies and resources actually continue to go into ambitious plans for the future. One quick question. You mentioned previously that it was 1950s or 60s where the belief went down. Was there some trigger at that time which caused this? What were the underlying factors? I don't know if you've looked into it. Yes, I've thought about this a lot. There was a whole, it was a whole process through the course of the 20th century, and it really began with the world wars. The optimism was very strong right up until about 1914. As soon as World War I happens, you see people deeply questioning the notion of progress itself and asking what went wrong. But they're still trying to move progress forward for a generation or two. But one thing that happened in the mid-20th century was people were trying to move progress forward in a very authoritarian way. And so there was this kind of technocracy or high modernism that came about where progress became associated with 
authoritarianism. And this generated a pushback, a blowback, a counter movement, literally the counterculture that said the system, the man, is impinging on individual freedoms and liberties and local communities and so forth. And we don't want that. And if this is what progress means, or if this is what is required to create progress, then we don't want progress either. That came to a head, I mean, around, it hit some tipping point around 1970-ish. And from that decade on, really, there was a a big major vibe shift. The mood changed. And this kind of more anti-progress idea took over. Um, And I think we've receded from that somewhat, but we're still left very much with its legacy. I was going to ask you, why do you think that happened then? So you think wars are the biggest enemies of progress? War is a large enemy of progress. Absolutely. The world wars in particular, because around the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, people like the most optimistic people were hoping that technology, that the growth of technology, really that technological and scientific progress and economic and industrial progress would all go hand in hand with moral and social progress, that these things were linked together somehow. And that it was all one thing and that was, and that everything was getting better at the same time. And In fact, they were hoping that the growth of industry and of trade and communication and so forth would lead to an end to war. And so in the early 20th century, you had people really thinking, maybe we've entered on a century of world peace. And instead, what we got was a century of world war. And so that completely shattered the naive illusions of the optimists and really made them question everything that they were thinking, right? And and so it was a blow to optimism. And then you combine that with a depression the rise of totalitarianism around the globe, increasing concerns about the environment, health hazards of technology, increasing challenges of just how do you manage accountability and liability and health and safety in an increasingly interconnected, interdependent economy. A lot of factors like this that were a big challenge. There was this deep soul searching of what happened, where did all this come from? Everything seemed to be going so well, and then the world blew up on us. World War I alone really started this process, as in even after World War I, you see people saying, what happened? We thought progress was going so great, and then the world blew up in our faces. But World War II really drove this home, and particularly with the atomic bomb. That was just a very obvious, I mean, I don't want to put all the weight on that one thing, but it's very symbolic in that the most absolutely horrific, destructive weapon the world had ever seen was a product of modern science technology and industry. And it really made people question, what is going on? Is this where all this progress is leading us? And uh, there's a lot of soul searching. And the whole generation after World War II, I think there was people continuing to struggle with this question. And some of the most, I, I think it was a turning point in history, because you could have had people stepped up to say, hey, all of these, yes, all of these are real problems. And we're going to solve these problems with more and better technology and with better social systems and and so forth. You got this countercultural reaction of like, actually, maybe technology and progress and so forth, maybe they're the problem. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe we should try to go back or stop it or slow it down or something. And so it was this very reactionary worldview that, that came to prominence. What are your thoughts on the state of progress studies, Jason? Yeah, sure. Obviously, I'm extremely biased because I'm right in the middle of it. But I think I'm very pleased with how progress studies has grown up. When I started the blog, The Roots of Progress, there was no progress studies. Um, And now I've developed this into a full-time thing for myself. I'm working on a book right now. We've also turned the blog into a nonprofit organization to try to support more progress intellectuals and progress writers like myself. At the same time, there are people working on the forefront of policy and politics, like the Institute for Progress in D.C. There's a a quarterly magazine, Journal of Progress Studies, basically, Works in Progress magazine. There's just a lot of interesting stuff going on. It started to make inroads into media. Journalists like Derek Thompson and Noah Smith, Matt Iglesias, even Ezra Klein are all writing on these topics. Some politicians have even picked it up. I'm just seeing pretty broad interest and support and seeing it growing by year. So I'm excited. With that, we'll shift to our outro section, a rapid fire set of questions. What motivates you? Ultimately, I want to see 
humanity make more progress and enjoy it for myself. There's a very there's a very selfish motivation here. You know, I want to I want to live past 100 and I want to actually maybe visit some other planets and I want to I want to talk to the AI and I want to I want to see the nanotech. I'm just I'm hoping I don't die in the same world that I was born into, if you know what I mean. Absolutely love it. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? I think that money is a force for social good and that rather than corrupting things, money can actually help. Putting money into social transactions or making things commercial or for profit can actually help them be not only more efficient, more effective, but in many ways more fair and be better for society. I think when people are not motivated by money, they're very often motivated by power, prestige, culture, ancient biases and bigotry, and money helps sweep a lot of that away. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking career or life? Oh, wow. I'll just throw out a handful of names. So, you know, recently, some in terms of the progress stuff, some of my strongest influences have been Steven Pinker, David Deutsch, really like J. Storrs Hall's work, Where's My Flying Car, had a big impact on me. Earlier than that, certainly earlier in my kind of intellectual career in life, read a lot of Ayn Rand and am very influenced by that worldview, particularly the notion of scientists and inventors and entrepreneurs as heroic figures and that the work they're doing to move the world forward as part of a noble quest. What are you currently reading? Oh, let's see. I just finished reading T.S. Ashton's book on the Industrial Revolution, which is kind of classic from the 40s. I am in the middle of reading a forthcoming book by Jim Pethokoukos called The Conservative Futurist, which is very interesting. Those are a couple of things on my list. And the last one, who are your favorite writers or podcasters? Let's see. My favorite blogger is Scott Alexander, Astral Codex 10, previously Slade Star Codex. There's a lot of other folks that I read. One who's a little more up and coming, I'll point out, is Eric Gilliam, who I think is one of the best, best writers in the progress space and, and one of the more underrated ones. In terms of podcasts, one of the one of the best up and comers, and again somewhat underrated, is Dwarkesh Patel and his Lunar Society, and he's been getting some really fantastic. He just put out an interview with Richard Rhodes, who wrote "Making the Atomic Bomb" and "Energy: A Human History" and a bunch of other things. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast. Pop us an iTunes review and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.